Hello and welcome back to Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, the cruelty of the Stop the Boat scheme. Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman announce an immigration policy that's not just unworkable and probably illegal under international law, it seems designed to cause suffering. What does it mean? What can we do about it? And what does it say about how the Conservatives have changed Britain? Plus, is it ever okay for politicians to tell lies? Keir Starmer's been accused of going back on his promises to Labour members. Does that matter as long as a leader stays true to the public? And in the extra bit for Patreon people, as the 94-year-old actor James Hong accepts a Screen Actors Guild Award, who else should have got their recognition a bit earlier in life? Let's meet the panel. Ian Dunst is the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't and co-host of the Origin Story podcast. Hello, Ian. Hello. There's another two months until that book comes out and you already sound quite tired of saying it. <laughs> I'm as tired of it as you're tired of it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. It's, it could definitely go either way. What happens if Westminster starts working before the book comes out and it's all just like totally mm. smooth? I feel very confident that's not going to happen. Yeah, you just like cut out the second half of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're coming to the end of the Matt Hancock, Isabel Oakshot week of woe, and we all feel as tired and stuffed as the day after Boxing Day. We've all had a good laugh at the two of them, but has the Telegraph successfully rolled the pitch for the idea that lockdown was a terrible mistake and needn't have happened? Because that has been the goal of the whole thing, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's her aim, that's their aim. You can see it in sort of Fraser Nelson, most of his opinions. It's this idea, which I think is quite, it's, it's, I mean, it's not an intelligent idea and it's not a true one. But it's sort of a bit too subtle for mass consumption. It's, it's yeah. this idea of like, oh, it was political decisions. You know, ultimately, what this all shows is these are all political decisions and they're not really scientific decisions, the ones that were taken during COVID. And I think that that is kind of, as bullshit as it is, it's still too nuanced a point to actually sort of actually make a proper imprint in the national consciousness. So I don't think any of this has really worked out for them terribly well. What people have sort of taken from it is, oh, they were kind of fucking up a bit. That's yeah. about as much as I think people would have concluded. Yeah, as a master plan thing to get out there, like they're all awful people doing awful things isn't really news. I thought at the beginning that it was cleverer. You know, the first day had this very kind of pro-lockdown friendly uh, sort of angle on what had been going on by talking about the care homes. Mm. So I suddenly thought, oh, fuck, so it's Oakshot, it's the Telegraph. They start on care homes, which is obviously like sort of item A in the evidence against the Boris Johnson administration. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's a that's a sort of an attempt to get us all on side before yeah. they start veering wildly into anti-lockdown stuff. But I don't think it's half as clever as I thought that they might be at the early stages, because that's certainly not the way it's come out of the last it's two like, weeks. It's like when a little kid tells, starts telling you a story and it just goes on and on and on. And you're like, <laughs> and? The punchline is and? Today's Strutland on the Telegraph is a great one. It's like the coronavirus inquiry is now an out-of-control monster. Like, it hasn't even started yet. What are you talking about? Rachel Cunliffe is Senior Associate Editor at New Statesman. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So the Sue Gray story is also rumbling on. Conservative MPs are trying to block her unprecedented hiring by Keir Starmer, citing her knowledge of the most sensitive details of government ministers. Uh, Surely it is very, very precedented indeed, and lots of former (laughs) civil servants have gone to work in political jobs. Well, what I think is unprecedented is the fact that we all know Sue Gray's name. We're not meant to know that. We're not meant to be uh, sort of fixating on a civil servant. And actually, we probably would never have heard of her if she hadn't been in charge of the Partygate report. She was only in charge of the Partygate report because Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, had to stand down from being in charge of that when it became apparent that he had actually attended some of the parties that he was going to be investigating. And actually, to go back to the Matt Hancock lockdown files, that's been my main takeaway that I sort of didn't know already from it, which is how much of a twat Simon <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Why aren't we talking about the Simon Case case, which we should be talking about? 
I think the strange thing with Sue Gray is nobody has, has clocked the fact that she has powers of time travel. So that in the future, when she's working for Keir Starmer, she can go back and engineer a party at number 10 that enables Keir Starmer to come, become prime minister. It's like a Stephen Moffat mm. Doctor Who. I, I mean, this is sounding very much like everything everywhere all at once, which I didn't understand. So I'm, yeah. going, to, I'm going to take your word for it there. Uh, but like in, in terms of how much of a story this really is... We've all talked about the fact that when the Sue Gray report came out, it was a bit of a whitewash and Boris Johnson said it vindicated him. So if she really was on Keir Starmer's side, Team Labour, all that time, then she did a pretty rubbish job of it, didn't she? Well, when future Sue Gray finds out about Pat Sue Gray, there's <laughs> going to be blood on the walls. What did you make of Dorries uh, trying to blame her for the scandal of uh, Rishi Sunak's wife's non-dom status? I love this so much because uh, two things struck me. One is that people had almost forgotten about that. They'd almost forgotten yes. <laughs> that uh, Rishi Sunak's wife is a, a Indian billionaire heiress and uh, wasn't paying UK taxes for quite a while until the story broke and then she said actually you know maybe maybe she'd pay her taxes um so great uh, attempt by Nadine Doris to sort of knife Rishi Sunak in the back by reminding us all of this uh, but she did say there's no evidence at all that it was Sue Gray but you know it's worth thinking about and it's Big. worth thinking about other things so was Sue Gray responsible for breaking Boris Johnson's kids swing during the party we don't know was she yeah. responsible for giving the Prime Minister COVID these are the key questions that Nadine Doris is hoping to answer was she in Dallas in 1963 we'll never know I'm just asking questions <laughs> I think the time travel thing has just blown my mind now. I can't, I can't, I can't get past that. Sue Gray, reality-shaping mutants. <laughs> Completing the panel, Gavin Essler is a journalist, former presenter of Newsnight and current Chancellor of the University of Kent. Hiya, Gavin. Hello. Did you enjoy the claims that the Sue Gray appointment is debasing the civil service from Jacob Rees-Mogg and David Frost? <laughs> well, I'm lucky enough to have met uh, Sue Gray about uh, sometime in the past year and had a very long conversation with her. And I would say, it was all off the record, but I would say that uh, she's one of the few people in public life that I would trust with my wallet. Uh, whereas uh, David Frost and Jacob Rees-Mogg, I wouldn't trust with your wallet, to be, to be honest. So, I mean, the, the idea that Sue Gray has debased the civil service by doing her job, having had two ethics advisors, Sir uh, Alex Allen and uh, Lord Gait, fired effectively by Boris Johnson is ludicrous. And just think of the people who are traducing her reputation. We have David Frost, who is famous for being against Brexit when he worked for the whiskey people, then for Brexit, then negotiating a terrible Brexit deal, then saying it was excellent, then saying it was no good, um, and uh, ending up being rewarded by being in the House of Lords. So I just find this whole thing absolutely playing politics. And I think that if Sue Gray does work for Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer has lucked out because she will be a great administrator for him. And it won't be a directly political role. It will be an organisational role, which is what she's good at. Rachel just mentioned uh, the Conservatives' ability to dredge up terrible things about themselves as a, as a way to attack Sue Gray. Does them harping on about her actually keep Partygate in the headlines, which is like particularly bad right now, considering that Johnson will be before the Privileged Committee a week on Monday, I believe? Yeah, and I, uh, the Privileged Privileges Committee, I think, is uh, seven members, four of whom are Conservatives. And they already seem to have said that the evidence so far at least strongly suggests that he breached lockdown in an obvious way. So anything they can do to traduce 
the, the people involved perhaps they think is a good idea. But it's just reminded us that when the rest of us were actually trying to obey the law, not having a very good time and worried, sick about our relatives who might get coronavirus, there were parties going on and Boris Johnson was in there. So uh, I, I don't quite understand what they think they're going to get out of this, except remind us all how awful it was. Yeah, there should just be a big post-it note that says, don't talk about the past. International law. <laughs> what is it good for? Well, absolutely nothing as far as Suella Braverman is concerned. The Minister for Culture War has been out in full force this week with a new plan for reducing the number of refugees crossing the Channel, she says. It seems to throw out the rule book along with any asylum seekers who find their way to British soil. Ian, uh, this has been all over every single news page the past couple of days. What exactly is Braverman proposing and can you set out for us concisely why it is so horrible? Yeah, she's um, proposing the complete dismantling of Britain's asylum processing system. So there will be no domestic assessment of asylum claims. We will continue to take people from Hong Kong, from Ukraine, etc. You'll have operations that work in those countries that's where you assess the asylum claim and then you bring people here. But the whole system that we've been used to, that in this country, you can arrive here, you'll find safety here, you can make a claim here, that system will die with this bill. It is, by a very considerable distance, the most far-reaching and extreme asylum policy we've seen in our lifetimes, far more extreme and draconian than what we saw under New Labour or under previous Tory administrations, much more than under Theresa May or Boris Johnson, where you would have expected it. It's very, very extreme indeed. So, I mean, it's it's almost hard to vocalise because our, our set way of understanding asylum, you get here, you claim, no longer operates. There will be no more claims in this country. And there never will be. If they think that you've come here to make a claim, as they say illegally, it's not really illegal, then you will never be able to make a claim here. It is uh, uh, the people that I've spoken to today, the immigration lawyers, the campaigners are almost speechless with shock and actually kind of genuinely with despair. Like for a lot of them, it is the end of a way of doing things and it is the end of any kind of hope whatsoever for anyone that came here looking for Britain's protection. Handily, Rishi Sunak put out a very uh, simplified tweet which you raged against. And I want to go through the four points in that tweet. Firstly, said, if you come to the UK illegally, you can't claim asylum. As you just said, well, firstly, there's a big question mark over illegally because the legality or not was always determined by the application, surely. No, they're they're using an assessment that was in the Borders and Nationalities Bill where they said that by reaching here by an unverified route, i.e. by not one of our formal routes, which, by the way, don't really fucking exist anymore, then you have made an illegal crossing. So you're, you're sort of off the books as it is. What will happen then is that you're detained. You're detained initially for 28 days after that period, during which time you cannot claim bail and you cannot launch a judicial review. Okay? The one thing you can do, the one freedom left, is the most ancient of all the English freedoms. It's literally fucking habeas corpus. It is the only thing left to someone in that situation, and they can still make a claim on habeas corpus. But on anything else, your rights have been taken away. After the 28 days, they expect to still detain you by the way, as an illegal immigrant, and that's what it will be up to the Home Secretary. The only change is you do get to claim for bail, but it'll be up to the Home Secretary whether you're released. So you will be there treated as a prisoner and as a criminal indefinitely, according to their plans, until they can remove you, which they're not going to be able to do because they do not have the agreements in place. 
Secondly, he said, you can't benefit from our modern slavery protections. Yeah. I mean, is he saying that if you're here illegally, then you are open to abuse under modern slavery and we won't do anything about it? Well, they won't even bother to inquire as to what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. This is what is happening. What they're saying is we have no interest in what you have to say to us once you get here. So if you say, yeah, I've been smuggled and I'm a slave, then it will make no difference to your treatment. You will still be imprisoned and they will attempt to remove you. That sentence, that tweet that he put out, yeah. and that little bit of fucking content that they attached to it in the photo on Twitter yeah. is about as morally shameful a thing as we have seen from a British government in memory. Well, the third point in that tweet is you can't make spurious human rights claims. How do they know they're spurious until they've been made? Right. Well, they'll never know. They'll never find out whether they're spurious because they'll never get to make their claim. And the kicker on Sunak's tweet was you can't stay, which is surely prejudicing any and every case and making the previous points pointless anyway. No, but there are no cases because mm. we won't have an asylum system anymore. Okay. This is, a, this is what, when I say this thing about like it, it's beyond our assumptions as to how things work. There are no cases because they're never going to investigate the claim. They're not going to give a shit about the claim. They're just going to put you in detention. They're going to try to remove you. When they fail to do that, my prediction is that because they won't work as a deterrent against the boats, the detention infrastructure that they set up will become too full and they'll have to release people and then there will be tens of thousands probably hundreds of thousands of people in this country at the current rate of people coming in who literally have no status they're not asylum seekers because they're not being allowed to seek asylum to make the claim for asylum they have no status they're not allowed to stay they're not allowed to go it is the creation of a a new category of humanity in the country which is denied any kind of formal recognition whatsoever Rachel, friend of the podcast, David Allen Green, said the emphasis on media briefing for this bill indicates that these proposals are more to do with political theatre, not lawmaking. Is he right? I think he is right. And I should say that it's very difficult for me to kind of discuss this in a calm, rational way, because I am just as heartbroken about it as as Ian clearly is. Uh, I am the descendant of people who came to this country fleeing persecution from the Nazis. I think it is very telling that uh, we had lots of refugee groups and human rights groups expressing their outrage over this. But we had today a statement from the Jewish Board of Deputies pointing out that uh, this country has a very noble history of welcoming and accepting and helping people fleeing persecution and fleeing war zones. And this is a stain on our international reputation and a stain on, on history. And it's quite difficult to sort of separate how horrific that is from the political context. But in terms of is it more politics than than lawmaking, uh, I think you've got to see this as part of the, the Rishi Sunak playbook and what he's doing elsewhere, which is not in any way to excuse it. But who are the Tory hardliners who are most excited and it really is sort of gleeful excitement about the prospect of shutting off uh, asylum claims and and solving the, the small boats problem. Well, it's the ones who are a bit unsure about Rishi Sunak's position on Brexit and his solution to the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, that we've seen in, in, in past weeks, the kind who might cause some trouble for him as he tries to get that piece of legislation through. And I really do see this as red meat to them, a way to say, yeah, we know we're solving Brexit in a way that you don't like, but look at how tough we're being on small boats. And it is playing with people's lives uh, and futures. I also don't actually think it will ever happen due to a number of issues more to do with practicalities than, than international law. Where are we going to keep the, the tens of thousands of, of people who, who come here in, in 
while we're not processing their claims. Are we going to build more centres for them? Are we going to build prisons for them? That's that's a whole separate law and order issue there. So I I think it is more about political signalling than it is practical solutions. That that doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it better. Well, and this is not an original thought, but it's been widely said that the game plan is to lose in the courts over this, blame the ECHR for it, and then fight the next general election on essentially yet more Brexit and look what they're trying to do to us. And we have uh, we have to continue to, to force the issue of sovereignty. It's a very cunning plan, isn't it? Um, that I actually think is possibly too clever by half, just because if you look at the polling of people who voted Conservative in 2019, 83% of them say that the government is is handling immigration and is handling uh, the small boats crisis badly. So all this does, all of the headlines, all of the people who say uh, it doesn't matter whether it happens or not, the, the positive headlines, that the fact that this is in on all the front pages, the fact that you've got Rishi Sunak being really strong on small boats and Keir Starmer uh, opposing it, this is all really good for the Tories because it reminds people of an issue that they really care about. Firstly, immigration it's an important issue, but it's not a headline issue in the same way that the cost of living crisis or inflation or the NHS is, is a headline issue. But secondly, you're drawing attention to an area where you have failed and your own voters think you have failed. And I think that's really worth remembering as well, that this could backfire pretty radically, as it has in the past for Conservative Home Secretaries. And Preeti Patel was very, very tough on on, on her rhetoric around uh, illegal immigration and, and asylum seekers. And eventually, the Tory grassroots got sick of her because she'd been saying, I'm going to be so tough on this, and nothing had actually changed. And, you know, where is she now? So I think it, it's, it's actually riskier than perhaps the Conservative government realises. Well, Sunak has just had to distance himself from an email by Braverman, which said, we had tried to stop the small boat crossings without changing our laws, but an activist blob of left-wing lawyers, civil servants and the Labour Party blocked us. Is she just kind of freelancing within the cabinet now? I love the phrase activist blob. I feel like that's the kind of... Uh, obscure indie band from the 90s. I I feel like I've got their second album. Or a very obscure (laughs) X-Man. Yes, but but, but one one who's on the Magneto side. Yes, definitely. Um, Look, well, she's actually said that that email was was sent uh, without her knowledge and without her signing it off. I got it, and it did very much say from Swella Braverman. The kind of um, conflation there of activist lawyers with the civil service is kind of telling us uh, as well. The fact is, who is going to be enacting this policy? It is civil servants in the Home Office. They were doing a, a Q&A with, with Braverman this morning, and they are not happy about being scapegoated. Yeah, I saw that. This. They are really not happy. <laughs> really not happy. And, uh, I mean, morale is quite low across the civil service, but it's particularly low in the Home Office, which is considered dysfunctional even by the standards of, of government departments. So uh, regardless of what she was trying to achieve with that and whether she knew about it or not, if you're pissing off the people who you want to enact your policy, you've kind of already failed, haven't you? Gavin, do you think Bravman made an especially good case for this on her media round today? Well, I listened to her talking for about 20 minutes on the Today programme and it, it just struck me. It was like a, not a word salad, more like a word meringue. You know, there was a little crispy outside and you touch it and there was absolutely nothing in the centre on every question that she was asked on a matter of substance. What's the cost of removal? Don't know. Didn't answer. Um, how are we going to save three billion a year? Don't know. Uh, when will the first removals take place? Don't know. What are the safe and legal routes that people could come here on? But no answer. So 
I just found it really quite depressing. And I think I think this is really just the first shots of the 2024 election campaign. They think this is a wedge issue. They think it might work in some seats. They think it will uh, appease the right wing of the Conservative Party in some ways. Um, but I don't see it actually happening in a, a, any kind of timescale that we're going to be familiar with in the next year or so. Uh, I don't see it working, even if it does happen. And all I can see is a lot of rows. And just one thing, one, one reason why I feel so strongly about this is uh, I live on the Kent coast. I have seen the boats come in. I have seen people being arrested. I have talked to border force people who are included among my friends. And I remember being told, for example, of children coming in with severe hypothermia on these boats. Nobody wants these boats to come in in conditions like that. Nobody, including the people who are on them. They don't want to put put their children's lives at risk. So are we really saying that the children, and there are some children, and the others who come ashore, basically become non-people the moment they arrive? And I think that is what the government is saying. It is astonishing the way that this is kind of we've pivoted from last week or the week before, uh, you know, Mr. Friendly on Ireland and collaboration with the EU, right back to something that would disgrace the the depths of the Brexit campaign. In fact, this is this is the vote leave angle, isn't it? You know, Soila Brovman actually saying a hundred million people are going to Britain. If only we could find out who'd been the government for the past 13 years with all the people that have not been processed. If we could ever find out who these people were, we could perhaps blame them for the system that exists now and the mess that it is in now. So I think we should all be profoundly concerned because like all this is this is a government which is very adept at creating problems and not very good at solving problems. And I think this is a problem which is being created simply for the headlines because it appeases some people within the Conservative Party and they'll be able to pick a fight with the courts, which will allow them to talk about left-wing lawyers and, you know, all those all those well-known communists who are in the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. It's just a very, very sad moment because it's not an attempt to solve the problem. I think Gavin's point there about the people who arrive ceasing to be seen as human once they get here is really key. We still haven't got to the bottom of why all these children are going missing from asylum centres and if they are being uh, trafficked here in the UK, if they're basically being kidnapped or if they're running away. Like We don't know in any other situation having hundreds of children just disappear and go missing. We'd care about that. Like on a human level, yeah. we'd care about that. And the Home Office just goes not our problem. Local councils should have dealt with it. Local councils go, not our problem. Police should have dealt with it. We just kind of, there's this gap and children have fallen into it and everyone just sort of shrugs. And if you do get a line out of the government, the line is, well, they're probably not children anyway. And that sort of complete lack mm-hmm. of compassion, uh, I, I find quite chilling. doesn't even make the news. Barely makes the news, yeah. that fucking story. Just children just disappearing under government responsibility. No one gives a fuck. Ian, you've said this week has made you feel ashamed for Britain. Um, Much as we might criticise it, say it's unworkable, point out the gaping holes and the the cruelty and the inhumanity of it, is it going to achieve what the Conservatives want? Have they successfully shaped the country? I mean, firstly, I don't don't care. And I I hate this. this, I don't mean you. you In general, you see this thing of like, let's interpret this by virtue of does it help? And I just sort of think I, I couldn't give a fuck whether it helps them or it doesn't help them. Like, ultimately, what we care about with this is like, that there are women in Iran right now. The latest reports from Iran are about the use of chemical attacks in schools yeah. against women. Now, the, we don't know it, but the most likely source for that will be pro-regime forces. 
Yeah. We know that the women are executed and that they are tortured in Iran for refusing to wear the hijab. There are no safe routes from Iran. Yeah. There is nothing that we are providing. If an Iranian woman were to get here, we would lock her up and try and then fail to send her back. That's the moral chasm that we've fucking fallen into. So if, if in some universe, Rishi Sunak does better because of that, then fuck my life. I, I can't even begin to conceive of the, in, the moral insanity of a country where that would happen. But also, I couldn't give a fuck because the primary problem is the fact that we are about to brutalize some of the most oppressed and poor and vulnerable people on the face of this earth. And it will be done by the British government in the name of this country. And at the moment, I think that is such a vast thing to comprehend that it's impossible to see around the other side of it. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in Book Your Emails. Don't forget, listeners, you can back us on Patreon and ask your questions as well. This time, Joe E in Australia says, which policies would the panel like the UK to copy from overseas, which would actually improve life? When I see Sunak copying the shameful Australian refugee policy, I wish the UK would copy our electoral system instead. Rachel, what policy should we be pinching for around the world that aren't a points-based immigration system? Childcare from literally anywhere. Uh, I mean, the UK has some of the highest childcare costs in the world. I've obviously, for this question, looked at the Nordic countries, which are brilliant and I nearly cried reading that uh, in Sweden parents get are entitled to 16 months of parental leave paid at 80% of their salary uh, the childcare costs are uh, like less than $100 a, a month uh, in Denmark Childcare is again seen as like a, a national infrastructure. Uh, they're, they're, they're capped, which makes them affordable. In Norway as well, you get an allowance for children that helps you pay for, for childcare. And these countries have kind of recognised that having children is kind of in the national interest if you want you know future workers and future taxpayers and somebody i know population growth is an issue here but if you want people to pay your pensions and pay your social care costs you kind of need them to exist in this country we've just gone no no it's sort of you know don't have children if you can't afford them and then lots of people aren't because they can't afford them and then we go ah the birth rate is so low why are these silly women not having children it must be because they're too woke and um it just makes me want to cry and actually australia uh, has just elected a labor government that came uh, as part of its manifesto with a really strong universal childcare pledge the labor party i know is is working on this some of my colleagues have interviewed members of the shadow cabinet about specifically this i would just love there to be awareness that children are a public good and maybe we as a society should treat them as such rather than getting parents to pay a thousand pounds a month out of their taxed income for for nursery places well, I think we should pinch some of the policies that occur in the United Kingdom itself. For instance, uh, having the Scottish or, or Welsh or actually the Northern Ireland system for electing people to public office, i.e. not the first-past-the-post system, which is only copied, as far as I can see, within Europe by Belarus, I think it would be a good idea to do that. And But the other policy that I think would be brilliant if we would copy it, is from Finland. Uh, I'm a great admirer, as Rachel is, of the Nordics in, in a lot of things. And one of the things they do in Finland is they teach in school media literacy. They teach people to look at newspapers and think, 
why am I reading this crap? It's obviously crap. And what they do is they just simply say, what's behind this article? What are people trying to do? What are they trying to sell us? And one of the interesting things is that people in Finland, for example, actually trust a lot of their media. Whereas in the United Kingdom, one of the real surprises is that the two most popular newspapers in the United Kingdom are The Sun and The Mail, and they are the two least trusted newspapers in Britain. Now, you go figure that. Media literacy, I think it's the way forward. And they teach it from kindergarten on in Finland. Sold. Ian, what do you want to pinch? I would like to do a second vote for Finnish education systems. One of the things that the Finns make difficult is trying to highlight exactly what it is that they're doing so right, because they do so many terribly clever things with education. I mean, one of them is starting school at seven and focusing until then on play. Another is banning private education altogether. Yeah. Like, which is absolutely the correct way to go. You look at the stats that come out, extremely egalitarian outcomes. Once you get rid of this kind of inherited privilege, which comes with it with, you know, changes in sort of uh, teacher-student ratios, etc., and equipment, what you get is really quite even, very, very impressive outcomes. Over and over, you just look again at what Finland does. Another thing, incidentally, is paying teachers very well and giving them a huge degree of autonomy over what they do. Why? So that it passes the dinner party test. So that a teacher at a dinner party would go, I'm a teacher, and people are actually like, whoa, that's... That's like really great news. That's a really impressive thing to be. That's yeah. something that we actually value as a society. Whereas here, you go to dinner party with uh, teachers, as I did the other weekend, and talking to my mates. And when people are told I'm a teacher, people go, oh, I don't know how you do it. Yes, exactly. Oh, God help you. You poor how? thing. Yeah, you poor, poor, poor thing. Yes. Like, I mean, honestly, the, the Finnish education system, if you could just pick it up wholesale and deposit it in your country, you would have a better place to live. And, and, and the Finnish childcare system too. So and like, it's, it's all about valuing education and investment in the next generation and early years and, and all that stuff. So I guess that's three votes for the Nordics then, isn't it? It's not we International just... Women's Day anymore. Stop talking <laughs> about these things. You've got one day a year. It's International Finland Day International on this Finland podcast. Day. Yes, well, I've got one to pinch from Singapore, of all places, where you wouldn't necessarily, you know, hmm. shot in the street for dropping chewing gum, not necessarily the kind of place that you'd want to imitate, but their national insurance system. You know, our national insurance, people go, I paid my national insurance. I've got my pot hidden away in the treasury. No, you haven't, mate. It's all been spent. It was spent as revenue spending years ago. In Singapore, it actually is a national insurance system. Okay, you're compelled to pay into it, but you actually do build up a pot. And it's a very hmm. good idea because one of the reasons that people get so disillusioned and annoyed with our social security system here is they think, I've paid it in. What am I getting out? Where's my pot? It's a misnomer. It's an additional tax, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Over there, it actually is a savings pot. We should do that. Your national insurance is your national insurance. And it can then, pay, you know, then you've got childcare as well. And we're living in a Singaporeo Finnish paradise. What's concerning is that the last time we had these ideas for policies, Andrew came up with this university of life. You've got to tell people the meaning of money and how to do it. <laughs> now he's all like, isn't Singapore great? Basically, what I'm seeing is this kind of undercurrent of right-wing thought making its way into the podcast by your pronouncement. You know full well, Ian, that if I proposed a team of motorcycle riding judge, jury and executioners, you'd be all over it. <laughs> Now, should I lie to you? Turn to very online left Twitter and you will see constant outrage that Sir Keith Stormtrooper has totally betrayed Labour members and broken all of his promises to them. One excitable columnist said that Starmer was one of the most dishonest politicians in Britain, and that's quite a bar to pass. Meanwhile, the electorate seemed pretty chill about this. At the time of recording, Ipsos was giving Labour a 25% lead over the Tories. 
Rishi Sunak too has been accused of breaking promises on everything from what he knew about Dominic Raab's discipline problems to bringing integrity back to government. But does all this matter? Should we focus on the really big untruths and not worry about the small tactical porkies? Rachel, it might sound odd after the age of, you know, the two most notorious liars in history, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, but do we have to accept some lying to oil the wheels of government? I wouldn't necessarily call it lying. I would call it being pragmatic. And effectively, if you go into, as a voter, if you sort of look at politics and go, I am not going to vote for anyone, any party, unless I fully agree with literally everything they say literally every stance they have on every issue and then you expect politicians to to live up to those standards, you're going to be very disappointed because what you're going to get is a load of politicians who tell you what you want to hear and then when they're actually in power or when they're trying to win power have to make the compromises that are just sort of of necessary. Or even worse, enact it and blame you. (laughs) This is what you wanted. Well, I think I think I think blaming the voter is a is a, is a novel way to to get elected. Certainly, I think there's just more awareness, and this is something that has frustrated me a lot. That there is kind of more awareness on the right than on the left that you can't have everything, or you can't have everything immediately. Like in order to get a Labour government doing any of the things that you want, you have to first get a Labour government. And if you are going to uh, only vote for the Labour Party, Labour candidates, if they are left-wing enough for you on every single issue, they're going to pretend to be left-wing enough for you and then they're going to disappoint you. And one thing that actually I think the right is better at is saying politics is a compromise and I don't want politicians that I'm in love with. I want politicians who will broadly govern better than I think the other side would. I think um, Marilla Kant's got a, a great book out on the internet called Escape, which I think is how we, we all feel about the internet at this point. But one of the things that she writes about that I think is quite important is that politicians used to give speeches and they used to be uh, interviewed on TV and radio interviews, but they didn't used to be on Twitter. They didn't used to be churning out opinions on literally everything all the time. And so for the most part, you didn't know what they thought about every single tiny issue. Now you do, and you can find many more ways to sort of pick holes with what they're doing. And also they're saying one thing to their base. They're saying another thing to try and get elected. They're saying a third thing when they are elected and they're trying to actually make it happen and I just think that we as an electorate need to be a bit more grown up and kind of hold our noses and vote for the people who will think will do a marginally better job than the other one uh, because otherwise we'll be very disappointed and very sad. The bloke in the pub take. I mean I don't, I don't go to pubs. Well I go to pubs and you hear guys in pubs going yeah they tell lies all the time politicians lie all the time that's all they do every single time every time they open their mouth they're lying. Is that really true in your experience? I mean, I think we all lie all the time. Everything from, you know, white lies to make people feel better all the way through to sort of excuses to our bosses. I think it it is true, having seen Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages, that I think we've all had that moment of, oh, fuck, what if my WhatsApp messages became public? Oh, my God, like Mm. what that would sort of do to us. So we do have private selves and public selves and politicians are weirdly expected not to have that which I think is really damaging because then you only get people who sort of curate their private self in order to to work electorally and we don't get normal decent people who are not psychopaths in politics I'm not calling all politicians psychopaths just just all of them I think (laughs) Yes, it is true that there is a lot of massaging the facts and figures uh, that, that, that goes on in, in politics, a lot of horse trading. But fundamentally, that's what's needed to, to govern. I'm thinking about 
Hamilton, which you will know I do as my sound check every time I'm on this yes. podcast, uh, which has a, a whole song about the room where it happened, pointing out that the deals get done among people who have been put in that position to make the decisions. They make the decisions as best they can, and the rest of us send them off to do that. We're not in the room. We're not making those decisions. And to then sort of criticise that process when it's a process that we've kind of all signed up to is, I think, a bit disingenuous. None of which is to excuse some of the, the lies that we've seen that sort of hint towards things like corruption and uh, sort of financial mismanagement for personal gain uh, and, and and those sorts of things. And if we're talking about you know, the governing process, yeah, there's a certain amount of disingenuous horse trading that goes on. Ian, we started out as a Brexit podcast and the most notorious lie of the past decade possibly was 350 million quid for the NHS on the side of a bus. Arguably it changed history and because it was on a referendum and not during a general election, couldn't be corrected at another vote. That was it. It went in. It couldn't change it in any way at all. Do you think that the bus and the referendum were turning points in what people expected from politicians in terms of truth and lies? Well, it was a change in the in the methodology, I think. So until then, obviously, I mean, you know, the, the, there's probably the most famous, is it a lie? Well, it turned out to be one was, you know, the Lib Dems on tuition fees, mm. right? Which, to be fair, during the campaign, Nick Clegg was privately trying to keep it, that pledge, as far away from the front page stuff, from the promotional stuff as he possibly could, because he kind of knew it wasn't long for this world. But then they didn't have to go into it as hard as they did. Now, they got, we know how that ended. They got severely punished for it. But what you're ultimately looking at is people who knew a policy probably wasn't tenable, but it was still quite attractive, and then, you know, betrayed the voters who, who, Put, yeah. put them in place because of that policy. Then you get the phrase on the bus. And that's quite different because there, Dominic Cummings is doing something very conscious. And he said it. He's been very clear and explicit about this. He's documented it himself, which is to say, we knew it wasn't true. We knew that by having all the sort of establishment figures, like, you know, the Office of National Statistics and all that come out and challenge it, and all the sort of wonkish, liberal, effete intellectuals of North London, then they will just help us spread the number and the name, you know, 35, yeah. you know, the NHS. There it is, just bang it into people's brains. So that is a very different thing. That is, that is a level of cynicism and a hijacking of the mechanisms of political discourse that I don't think that we'd really seen anyone be quite that cynical and even if we sort of ingenious really about the way that you lie in politics. So it felt like a qualitative change and I think now if you zoom forward to this morning, you know, Suella Bregman on on the Today programme, as Gavin was saying, just, you know, what's she saying? Oh, it's a billion. She's like, yes, said a billion people, a billion refugees can come to this country. She knows it's just utter garbled nonsense. But when she's challenged on it, as she, as she was challenged by, um, on, on this morning, I think, uh, on ITV, you know, she just basically just doesn't blink, just carries on as if nothing's fucking changed. Yeah. Because there, a, a sort of, like, almost like a sort of species limit had been met where you could just get away with a staggering amount of bullshit all of a sudden. And that is still sweeping, certainly the Tory parliamentary party. I want to ask you about that Starmer thing that I, I mentioned at the top. The charge sheet uh, of the left is that he promised to raise the top rate of income tax, preserve the 2017 manifesto, common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water. And free movement, don't forget. Free and free movement, movement. yeah, right. and that one too. Um, are they right to be angry or is it, congratulations, you just had a political education, this is what happens in politics? No, they. I think they are right to be angry. I mean, you can't, there's no, no matter how much you want to support him, there's no way of getting over the distinction between how he campaigned for the leadership and the way that he's acted now. And that has not always been the case, right? Like you, you wouldn't, I don't think you could lay the same thing at Tony Blair's door when he was campaigning for the leadership. You know, he was pretty clear about what he was going to be. And incidentally, when he was running to be prime minister, 
at, like Thatcher, he was also, they were both very clear about what they were doing. I mean, Tony Blair basically came across like a kind of a slightly lefty Tory, <laughs> you know, and that's sort of how he governed. I mean, I, I, Starmer was was quite deceptive in that campaign. The thing is that we're all we're all kind of hypocritical on this, right? Because we think about our preferred outcomes and we think about a certain level of sort of, you know, integrity and truthfulness in the people that we're talking to. And in, in from my position, nothing mattered more than, A, just on a constitutional level, creating a functioning official opposition in mm-hmm. this country. Now, given that was the case, I kind of don't mind because he had to lie to achieve that. He wasn't going to get that leadership without it, so I can let it pass. Yeah. For me, that's a different question than it's going to be for a momentum supporter exactly, where yeah. that's not your alignment. Gavin, we've talked before on the podcast about how Johnson and Trump in particular aren't just liars, they're bullshitters. They know what they say is untrue and they know that you know it's untrue. They just want to flood the zone with shit in Steve Bannon's uh, ringing phrase. Um, Is bullshit a worse threat than old-fashioned simple untruths? I I think it might be, actually. I think it might be in the sense that uh, what both Trump and Johnson are brilliant at was capturing tomorrow morning's headlines. Uh, and they did it constantly. It was always look over there. Hey, did you know I paint, um, I paint cardboard boxes and make them into buses? I think the question of lying is very interesting because I spent a year of my life on one lie, which was I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And I thought this is going to sink him, but it didn't. And not only did it not sink, Clint- uh, sink Clinton, I mean, people within the White House were appalled. But believe it or not, the American public recognised that Bill Clinton isn't the first person in the world to have lied about sex. I mean, however, I'm not condoning what he did. He was a, he was, you know, president of the United States and she's a young woman who was working for him. But he left office more popular than when he started in January 1993. And a second lie or misstatement or uh, encounter with reality seems to be much more interesting in a way for Keir Starmer, which is, that one of Clinton's big selling points, in fact, his real selling point was, I promise you a middle class tax cut, which he promised throughout the 1992 campaign. And then he was he was got at by people, including the Fed uh, chairman, Alan Greenspan, who said, if you do that, you know, interest rates will go up, mortgages will go up and the middle class will be worse off. He abandoned the core of his campaign in 1992. And nobody really remembers it because guess what? The economy took off and it was a success. So I think what people remember, people outside politics, is they remember success and they are fairly um, elastic in terms of what they're promised by politicians because they think a lot of promises are nonsense. So for Starmer to change his views on certain things can seem like maturity or this is the real world. And when he, if he gets into government, he may change his mind again. But we all do, don't we? So I think, I think it, to, to me, it's the bullshit. It is the belief that you can continue to fool people all the time by talking nonsense. In the case of Donald Trump saying, I'm hard at work in the White House, when we see pictures of him on television, or when he says, my inauguration was the biggest uh, attended inauguration in history, when you can see it's half empty. That is the sort of stuff that worries me, because they really think we're fools. We used to be a society where a minister would resign if caught telling an untruth, even inadvertently. Now they stay in place where they've clearly been seen to tell untruths. How do we get back to that old state? Or do we even want to be there? Do we want to be in a one strike and you're out scenario? Do we have to live with the fact that uh, you know it's better to know what they're capable of? 
Well, I, I used to be a big fan of uh, the good chap theory of government, of Peter Heresy, when, when he said, you know, we were always run by chaps and a good chap knew when to go and so on. And I think it was true up to a point. You know, Lord Carrington resigned over the Falklands War, which wasn't, wasn't his fault. That's gone. But the question is, I think the question is actually slightly diff- different, which is, what do we do about the bad chaps and bad women in government? What do we do when we have ethics advisors who end up resigning rather than the person who has breached what we most of us would think would be a reasonably ethical way of, of pursuing uh, a governance in this country? That, to me, is the challenge. And we haven't even begun to grasp it, unfortunately. Before we go, a bit of something different. A message from a Patreon supporter after Seth Tavos's point about the purpose of GB News in an episode a couple of weeks ago. Edward Bloomfield says, Thank you, Seth. Finally, someone gets the main reason why GB News exists. It isn't to get large audience in the UK, but to be a source of short clickbait videos for Twitter and for far-right overseas influencers. For years, liberal news and comedy in the US would use UK news clips to argue their case and show how things could be if the US only acted in a more sensible way from an unbiased news source. By churning out this bilge, GB News provides the far-right overseas BS machine with a misleading counter-narrative, clips that they can falsely cite as what Britain is saying and how Britain gets it right, with GB and Union Jacks and known British faces like John Cleese to create false equivalents with the BBC, ICN and Sky UK. GB News isn't something to be chortled at, it's dangerous. That's really interesting, and I think we're going to be returning to GB News over and over again because I don't think it's going away. So do feel free to send us your messages via Patreon, and we'll read out the best ones in future episodes. And that's the end of the show. Thank you for joining us, Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. Rachel Cunliffe. Thank you. And Ian Dunt. Thank you. We're back on Tuesday with your exciting budget pulse-pounding countdown. Until then, thanks for listening. Here's our beloved theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional roll call of Patreon backers. Hello, and many thanks from me to Rebecca Tan, Nigel White, and Tim Milne. A big thank you from me to Ronel Wilde, Fernando Rizzo, and Simon Mulvaney. And finally, all the best and thanks for your support from me to Al D, Nick, and David Bruce. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Welcome to the extra bit, the velvet-roped Sanctum Sanctorum for the Ogwen Patreon Illuminati. James Hong, actor in the multiverse epic Everything Everywhere All at Once, is 94 years old, he's just won an award, and he says his chance to do all the kind of film projects he's ever wanted is right now. He's already made over 450 movies, his first was opposite Clark Gable, and in his Screen Actor Guild Award acceptance speech... He was able to trace a career that went from the days of Yellowface, when Asian characters would be played by white actors with their eyes taped up, to a time when all Asian casts are possible and successful. It made us wonder, is it better to get your plaudits in later in life, after you've done the hard yards, and who deserves recognition after their years in the trenches? So, so what do we think? I mean, is it, you know, Ian, is it better to get your attention early on, when you're impressionable, impressionable and mouldable, or when you're older and you appreciate it? I mean, why can't you have both? Because you can't be an overnight sensation twice. Well, well you can't be rediscovered that. like about... Tom Jones. Ian, Ian could be. Ian could be yeah, an overnight Certainly, exactly. Thank you. Well, I don't intend to go away in the middle. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, well, I, I, I sort of think you can have both. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see why one should preclude the other. Mm. I do think, like, if we're realistic about it, acting doesn't quite count for this. Um, but I think in music and writing, you, you do get a sense sometimes of it's quite hard to stay on it. Mm. And 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 vital over a very long period of time. There are examples, right? Like obviously, you know, you're David Bowie's and and who you're had Madonna's. a horrible dip in the eighties. To yeah. be fair, yeah, but that's you know that's part of the story, yeah. That's, uh, and yeah. Johnny Cash, horrible dip. Bob Dylan, you could say, has has continued, although that uh, people could write PhDs on whether they. Were and that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads, a day early, and with the extra bit, then join the Ogwen Army and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as three pound a month, and you'll also get an exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, what else? With a couple of our regulars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>